Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. Today, we have a very special guest, Martin Sanbu of the Financial Times. Martin is the FT's economics commentator. He also writes the FT's weekly newsletter on the global economic policy debate called Free Lunch. Ironically, it's not free, but it's an amazing newsletter and everyone should subscribe to it. Uh, He joined the paper in 2009. Before that, he worked in academia and policy consulting. He's written three books on business ethics, the euro, and the economics of belonging. It's a great pleasure to have you here with us today, Martin. He has been one of the leaders in really writing about what to do with uh, Russia's reserves that are being held by Western banks and Western financial institutions. Earlier this year, in a number of columns for the Financial Times, he sort of dove into what to do about Russia's immobilized bank reserves that uh, we have sort of three different types of assets here. We have assets that are state-owned by the uh, Russian Central Bank. Then there's sort of individual assets when you think about Russian oligarchs and those assets that have been seized, the the yachts and so forth. And then the profits that have come from many of these uh, assets through, uh, through the interest accumulation. So we're really looking forward to having you here with us today, Martin. And also with us, of course, is Maria Snegavaya, a uh, senior fellow with the uh, Europe-Russia-Eurasia program, and Federico Steinberg. And let me just say a quick word about Federico. Federico is a visiting fellow here from the O'Connell Royal Institute. Federico is a professor, uh, also uh, connected with uh, Josef Borrell and the European Commission as a, as a policy advisor. Uh, Federico is sort of our resident economist in our program. So uh, we have, I think, what will be a really good discussion today. But Martin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. So maybe if you could start by kind of uh, unpacking this problem a bit. In the early days of, uh, of, of the war, Mario Draghi gets on the phone with Janet Yellen, both former central bankers, as Janet Yellen's at the Treasury Secretary, and they concoct, let's seize Russia's central bank assets. And they do that. Now, big questions about how much money there actually is, where is the money, and then what to do with it. Maybe you could unpack the problem, so to speak, and then we'll get into some of the weeds. Uh, absolutely, yes, because it's, it's a strange story in a sense. Uh, it, in one sense, this came as a huge surprise. In another way, not really. Something like this had been done before. And maybe we should just start by saying what this is. Every country in the world has a central bank. That central bank is responsible for managing the money supply of the local currency of that country and some other economic tasks, financial regulations, and so on. And all central banks will hold an amount in foreign currency. And that's in order to stabilize the exchange rate, to keep the government's savings. And this is particularly relevant for countries like Russia that export a lot of natural resources, oil and gas, especially in the case of Russia, metals, and so on. So big natural resource exporters, when prices are high, will have huge surpluses. And you kind of have to, you can't spend all that at home. You can't use it all up on imports. You don't want to burn through it just as you're making it. So you have to save it. And in many countries, that job is given to the central bank. So this is just a a fact of the global economy that if you're selling a lot of natural resources to other countries, you will accumulate claims on those other countries, the, the importers. 
And so the bank of uh, the Central Bank of Russia, at the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, had some $600 billion worth in reserves. These are called official reserves. It very rarely happens that a country touches another country's central bank. These are a bit like diplomats. Right? There's a kind of both an immunity in how you deal with them politically and also some, some levels of legal immunity. They don't pay taxes, for example, in other countries. Um, so, so there's a whole complex of how you deal with other sovereigns here. Now, it had happened in the past a few times that central bank assets were, were targeted, but these were rogue states like Iraq, like, uh, you know, famously, the um, Afghanistan central bank assets were seized when the Taliban took over again. But it had never happened against a big country, a G20 economy uh, like Russia. So that came as a bit of a shock. And it was very impressive that people like Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen and their colleagues in the G7 and eventually the whole coalition of 30, 40 countries that have worked together on sanctions, that they agreed to do this and to do it so fast within days of the full scale invasion. But it also wasn't a surprise insofar as Certainly, the Russian central bank and Putin's regime had worried that something like this may happen. So in the years leading up to this, you can see that the central bank of Russia is moving money out of dollars into other currencies. And that's because they were worried that at least Washington could maybe do something like this. So they moved money out of uh, dollars into other currencies, including currencies that aren't the big global reserve currencies. So they moved some money into Chinese renminbi and a lot of money into physical gold. So this is sort of really going back to 19th century, uh, the 19th century way of managing money. They didn't expect the Europeans to do this. They feared that the Americans may do it. They didn't expect the Europeans to do this, uh, but the Europeans did. So all the euro balances that they had accumulated were also basically they didn't have access to them anymore. So about half of their total money, $300 billion worth, is now out of reach for the Russian central bank and the Russian government. That's what was actually done. I think it's really important to, to understand how big this amount is. Uh, $300 billion is, is huge. It completely dwarfs any of the oligarch money that we think it's fun to read about, you know, the, the arrested yachts and the... Uh, confiscated mansions and so on. I mean, this counts in the hundreds of millions, single billions, maybe tens of billions in total across Europe, probably something similar or a bit less across the US. But here we're talking about hundreds of billions uh, of dollars. It's kind of the amount we're talking about that it may cost to rebuild Ukraine after the war. So we're talking really big money. So the difference, this important difference between private oligarch assets and these big official assets. That's really where a lot of much more of our thinking should be, I think. But it's also not so much if you compare it to how much we have continued to allow Russia to earn from the oil sales and gas sales that they have continued to make after the full-scale invasion. So we didn't, until much later, put in place any sanctions on their oil sales. We still haven't put in place any sanctions on their gas sales. So in the year since February 24th, 2022, they probably made another 200 billion, maybe up towards 300 billion, basically the same amount of money that had been arrested, seized, frozen, if you like, which has not been blocked in the same way. A big question is, where did that money go? Because only some of it was spent. Uh, some of it has been accumulated and we're not quite clear where it is.
So maybe you could talk about what is happening now at the EU level in trying to figure out ways to use this money right now to support Ukraine's uh, reconstruction. There's been talk, uh, uh, focus on some of the, the profits that have accrued. Is that making any headway? And what are some of the, the international legal issues that are preventing countries from just saying, okay, we have this money and we need to fund Ukraine's reconstruction. Russia has lost the right to it uh, by destroying another country uh, and violating international law. And, and so we're going to seize it and use it and, and give it to the Ukrainians to sort of do with it what they uh, either to rebuild their country or, or however they see fit. Good question. And the answer is a bit complicated because it's taken us a very long time to get clear about what we did this for. So it was a dramatic action, largely unexpected, as I said. But the original justification was this is going to stop the central bank's ability to manage the Russian exchange rate. And we saw in the first couple of weeks that the ruble plummeted. Later on, it went up because they found other ways to stop outflows of capital, for example. So one argument was, well, this is part of a bigger package of sanctions designed to cripple their economy. But that's only one aspect of this. The other aspect is, well, now this money is sitting there, kind of idle, out of reach for anyone. It's a lot of money. We're not going to give it back to them, are we? As you said in your, in your question, that's kind of the moral argument. But, but here is the thing. It, it took quite a long time for the discussion to move in that direction. What happened first really was, uh, and this is why I said earlier, the, the, the word seized and frozen isn't really the correct word. The Russian central bank is not actually sanctioned. If you look at it legally, it's not on a list of sanctioned entities. And this has to do with a, a legal interpretation of how sovereign institutions are kind of hard to touch in international law. So what Europe has done, and it's the same in the US and in the UK, what they've done is, is a ban on transacting with the Russian central bank. So unlike the oligarchs, we haven't said this institution is sanctioned, we have seized and frozen the money. What we've said is it's illegal for anyone in the EU, in the UK, in the US and elsewhere to do anything, including answer the phone when the Russian central bank calls and says, I'd like some of my money, please. Can you move it from this account to that account? Can you buy some other currency? Normal processes for central bank management. But we haven't actually taken the money. Uh, so legally, it's a bit complicated. Now, the EU is, uh, you know, it's famously said, the EU, the European Union is a creature of law. It's basically a, a legal system. EU institutions are very, very worried about doing anything that would be struck down in court because they don't have the authority to do anything. They're not a government. So, so there's very strong caution in the European system that is to some extent shared in London and in Washington that we can't just go and take this money because we would be struck down in court. And it'd be terrible if the Russian government sued us and said, and the court sided with the Russians. So that, that's kind of a good political and diplomatic point. At the same time, we know that we'll have to finance Ukraine's reconstruction. Plus, we really need to punish the Russian government of Vladimir Putin's regime for what they've done. So why would we let them have this 300 billion back? All of this has kind of been a very slow discussion. When I started really looking into the details of this in the autumn of, of 2022, I was shocked to find out that we didn't actually even know how much money there was. The 300 billion number that I cited, which everyone has been using, that comes from Central Bank of Russia official reports from before the full-scale invasion. That's just what they reported every year. This is how much we have in different countries and so on. But we never did the work of even saying, okay, let's just see, you know, how much is in France? How much is in Belgium? How much is in Germany? How much is in the UK? How much is in the US? None of this was done 
for some time unless it was done at the very secret intelligence level uh, and not shared in a way that journalists like me would find out about. But what is certain is that it's never been published. A couple of things are happening now. The EU has finally put together a working group, uh, partly just to start figuring out what are the exact amounts. Some governments are now starting to publish numbers. At the G7 summit in Hiroshima, there was a line in the communique or in the statement about Ukraine saying that we are now committed to fully mapping the amounts and locations of these reserves. This, of course, you could have done in March 2022, I think. It's a scandal that we didn't, but at least they are now onto it. That is a prerequisite for starting the much more substantive discussion about what to do with it. And here, too, the EU has started moving. They've uh, put together a working group, uh, and the language they use is echoed pretty much by everyone else. We are now exploring all lawful or legal means by which we can make the Russian state pay for the damages uh, it has caused in Ukraine. So there is a pretty strong political commitment to saying that we'll make Russia pay. So far, really only one exception, there hasn't been a strong uh, commitment to saying we will actually seize this money and finance Ukraine's reconstruction with it. The one exception is Canada. Canada is, of course, a very close friend of Ukraine. What they did uh, last year was to amend their domestic legislation to explicitly provide for confiscating a foreign state's sovereign assets and give that money to another state that had been a victim of breaches of, uh, of international law or, or the peace. So this was designed to do precisely this. Now, they haven't yet applied that law. There hasn't been an attempt to go to a Canadian judge and say, we want to take this Russian money and give it to Ukraine. So we will see if they ever try. But they are kind of the leading example. Everyone else is much more worried that this would violate international law. And they are really getting themselves into contortions, trying to see, are there ways we can deal with it? That's why you've had what I think of as really marginal measures, sort of inventive solutions saying, well, without confiscating the assets, are there ways we could temporarily invest them and take some of the surplus, some of the returns and give that to Ukraine? I think these are really sort of signs of timidity rather than a proper political commitment. The, the money would be tiny. I don't think these things make very much sense. They're kind of uh, holding patterns. So the big discussion is really, will they find a legal means, a legal procedure to say this money does no longer belong to Russia in the way that we have seen in a few cases with individual oligarchs? It's a fascinating point, fascinating issue. I think just on, you know, why haven't they, European and U.S. officials been thinking about this earlier? I just think this is, is likely that in a crisis response and things move at, at, at rapid pace and sometimes you don't take certain actions that were obvious in, in hindsight. And I think in particular, the, the effort to freeze or, or hold the Russian central bank assets uh, wasn't planned beforehand. It was something that sort of was generated. I think a lot of officials going in didn't think there would be the political will to do so. I think they kind of agreed with the Russian assessment. And then you have someone like Draghi and Yellen getting together, putting their heads on this issue. And then once they, once that action is taken, it's sort of, that's an issue that's solved and everyone's looking at the next crisis as opposed to looking at this issue. But I want to bring in uh, Federico and Maria. Federico, let me bring you in uh, and then Maria as well um, for any any comments or questions. But Federico, curious if you agree with kind of Martin's assessment of what's happening at the EU level. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that the way the sanctions have been structured and in particular this part of the sanctions 
going directly into the financial side, this is what is really novel. And I think this is what uh, the US and the EU uh, decided to do to, to upscale basically the level of response vis-a-vis -vis other events like actually the invasion of Crimea, right? So this is really something to be aware of. What they probably miscalculated was that one thing was, you know, looking at the stock, which is what has been frozen or unutilized, and then the flow continued to go actually in a very large manner because of the prices of oil and gas that were, you know, very high last year, less so now. But then within the European Union, and I think this is very interesting as well, uh, Martin, you said it, the EU is much more cautious. And I think who's moving this discussion is basically the US. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that people like, you know, Larry Summers or Robert Zelik uh, a couple of months ago started to put on a table a very aggressive stance by which you would say, you know, we are not going to ask uh, American and European taxpayers to put more money on the table when we have this money available. And, you know, this is politics. The, the legal issues could be resolved whereas the Europeans are much more cautious about that. Well, what's your view on that? I don't disagree, but I think it's, it's more complex. So I think in the US too, there are differences, and it's always easier to be uh, bold in a newspaper column. <laughs> I, know, I know that very well, uh, than if you sit in office and have to make these decisions. So I think even on the US side, Larry Summers and, and, and Phil Zellico and so on, I largely sympathize with them. I can't really judge the legal argument so well, but morally, I think the case is unanswerable. Of course, uh, we should take this money and use it for Ukraine, morally speaking. I think that when you sit as a government official, uh, you do have to worry about the legal process that happens. And I think this is, it's not so much that the Europeans are less willing to do the right thing. I think it's more that they, they actually do have a greater legal risk. I think that's, that has to do partly with the legal systems I mean, arguments I've heard suggest to me some of the arguments that Summers and Zelico make or others I've spoken to, the U.S. legal systems, it's easy to find legal avenues for this uh, that wouldn't be struck down by the, by the Supreme Court, partly because the whole system is less differential to international law than the European is. Whereas in Europe, the European Court of Justice is a player to, to reckon with and they, you know, they will strike things down when they think it's illegal. And it's a real it's a real issue that needs to be addressed. I mean, I, I think they're right. I think this could be done. But I also think there are differences, interesting differences inside the EU that are important to know about. So one is the difference between different member states. And here I think the East Europeans in particular and the Baltics are, are much more gung-ho, if you like, in terms of saying clearly this is what we have to do. But they are generally the ones pushing for tougher sanctions uh, in general uh, against Russia, not only on, on this issue. So there's, you know, a West-East, you know, different sensibilities, I think, uh, inside Europe. That's one issue. And other differences between the politicians and the technocrats. And, and my understanding is very much that there's, a, there's an increasing political desire to make this happen within a legal framework, whereas there's a lot of technocratic skepticism that a legal route can be found. That's kind of my reading of the situation, that you, you get more and more political statements uh, under the Swedish presidency of the European Council. We've seen this quite explicitly, you know, that Russia will have to pay. You know, they, they've tasked a bunch of technocrats to say, you know, find ways for us to do this. But what I'm hearing privately from a lot of the technocratic and legal side is, well, this is going to be really, really difficult. You know, there's a compromise solution that's kind of shaping up, and you can see this in some of the official statements now. Russia will pay... And maybe the way it will happen is just that we'll just keep these assets immobilized, is, that, is the phrase they use. 
will just keep it until they decide to pay out of their own pocket. And then they can get it back after they've paid. So we won't technically take their reserves, but they'll only get them back after they've paid anyway. That is something that's kind of starting to shape up, which may end up having the same effect. But I think they're still working on, on something a bit more robust. And I think we have to see this in the context of other ways of holding Russia accountable on the crimes against humanity and war crimes and crime of aggression front. On that same note, uh, if I may jump in, uh, I wonder if there is conceptual distinction uh, to draw between Russia's state money, like CBR reserves, but there's also oligarch assets, right, that are also frozen, and I think there's similar debate happening. But I wonder if, uh, in terms of making Russia pay, oligarchs' money are different. After all, you know, it's individual money, it's not technically state money, even in many instances they sort of are. I wonder if you could comment on it and the sort of debate that's unraveling in Europe and the United States as well, because it looks, again, that there's a little bit of difference there. I, I completely agree. I think it's a really important distinction. And what is funny to me is that it would seem to me that it should be actually easier to seize state money than private money. Uh, individuals have human rights in, the, in our understanding of human rights as certain rights to property and so on. For your human rights to be respected, it needs to be shown that you have some link to what's happened. And of course, these oligarchs do have very tight links to the Putin regime. They're only rich because of their support for him and so on. And they, you know, they are crooks and guilty as hell in a moral sense. But this has to be shown legally in a rule of law system, which we want to hold on to. The considerations that come in when it comes to sovereign assets are really about some foundations of, of international law. What can you do to other sovereigns? And, and that's why I mentioned earlier on the, the, the analogy of diplomatic immunity. As far as I can follow the legal debate on the state money, it's, you know, where, where does the boundary of that immunity lie? So, so clearly the argument and the strategy will have to be that Russia, through its actions, has forfeited these immunity protections that states are granted in our international system. You will have seen people using UN resolutions about the war, for example, that, that clearly blame Russia as a foundation for making that argument. All I can say as a non-lawyer is that I observe that this is very much disputed, what international law actually say. My view as a non-lawyer is if international law doesn't allow this to be done, then it's time to update international law. We do change the law. So we need to find ways of making something like this possible in such an egregious situation. You know, maybe where I differ a little bit from people like Summers and Zelikow is that I think it's more important to do it well than to do it fast, so long as the political commitment to, uh, to funding Ukraine's needs remain in place. If I may follow up on that, uh, in the Russian part of Internet, there's a lot of debate. You might have heard some scandals related to lifting sanctions from certain oligarchs. Alpha Group in particular has featured very prominently. Um, just a reminder to our audiences, a couple of months ago, it was discovered that uh, a number of Russian liberals signed a petition asking uh, the European Union to lift sanctions imposed on Alpha Group oligarchs like uh, Michael Friedman and Peter Avin, including, which came as a big shock and surprise to many, Leonid Volkov, who at the time was the head of Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation, which again made a big splash. So in the Russian internet, that's issue, that issue is discussed a lot. Should there be certain ways for oligarchs to get out of the sanctions? Maybe they can commit to reconstructing Ukraine or maybe to sharing part of their state, part, part of the assets for that cause. Wait, maybe is it worth having that discussion at all? Is this the moment to do it or shall we maybe wait 
Uh, I wonder what your take on it, since in the Russian, again, it's very widely debated. And the argument, is, as I understand it, is that it's it's necessary to give people a way out to kind of reform themselves and, and uh, you know, distance themselves from Putin, do the right thing and so on. Look, there's kind of a moral answer and, and a more strategic uh, answer. That the moral answer is uh, some of these people are a bit beyond redemption. There's no moral need to kind of allow allow people to now when it's convenient to disassociate themselves. But I think there's a much simpler answer than that, which is that there are there are ways. You know, we live in uh, we have the rule of law in every country. You can go and challenge these sanctions. Uh, you can simply say, and and there have been successful cases. There have been cases of people who've had sanctions overturned. Our systems are independent legal systems, and you can go and challenge things in court. The last EU sanctions package, or one of the EU sanctions packages, and upcoming UK sanctions will focus on legal services. Everyone in Europe is very concerned that if we sanction, we prohibit the provision of legal services to Russians, we don't prevent people from having fair representation in court, including oligarchs. So we're being very fair to people under sanction, I think. If really you don't deserve to be under sanction, you can challenge your case in court. So the argument really is about changing the sanctions policy. But I really don't see what the gain from that should be in a strategic sense. What is it we're hoping to do that if we... uh, if we, if we lift these sanctions, they're going to go on top of Putin? Maybe maybe that's the idea. Yeah, I also don't think it's very likely, though. Yeah. Maybe split the elites. Some of them will have incentives to kind of defect on Putin. Fair enough. Uh, it seems to me that those who would now defect from Putin will not, for any for the foreseeable future, be in a position to do anything against Putin. If they want to engage in activism, you know, they can go and protest against the Russian embassy in the country where they live, if they don't live in Russia. They live in Russia. Well, why are they still in Russia? If this is the route they want to take, there are all kinds of things that they can do that they don't need access to their mansions or bank accounts to be able to do. So, so I don't buy that at all. There may come a time if we see changes in Russia underway where we want to think about this. But I don't think that time is now at all. Some people are saying that uh, these measures have implications for uh, the role of the dollar in the international system, even the role of the euro, that other countries of the so-called global south may be having second thoughts of having part of the reserves in, in Western banks. What is your impression about this? Well, we've already seen a shift in, in Russia's reserves, of course, before the full-scale invasion, because they were worried about this. Uh, and there's been a decline in, in China's dollar reserves too. So no doubt that that is happening. The interesting question isn't so much where the countries are diversifying a bit, but whether that will be enough to create a big shift in the way the global monetary system works. That's the question we should be asking. If people want to hold a bit more renminbi, fine. Well, what else are you going to hold? Not really gold. That's that's kind of eccentric. Euros, well, that doesn't help you really. So it's basically renminbi is the only alternative. Central banks aren't going to hold crypto. The question is, you know, would this shift be big enough that it actually changes the way the monetary system, global monetary system work? I find that very, very hard to see. We need a big shift. And China, I don't think, can provide the sort of reserves in the amounts that we would be talking about for two reasons. One is that China itself is not a sufficiently open economy, financially speaking. It's not easy to take renminbi in and out of China. There are still capital controls. It's not fully convertible and so on. It's not a good reserve asset. Renminbi is limited to your trade with China. So by all means, you know, have reserves for your trade with China. But people are still going to trade with Europe and the US. That's the other reason why I think 
the dollar and the euro will remain very significant. But if you're uh, if you're Russia and you're accumulating reserves because you sell oil, and you're selling that oil to still somewhat to the West, maybe more to India. But what are you going to buy with this money, right? Well, you'll buy some Chinese goods, but you want to buy you know high tech goods from the U.S. You want to uh, buy services from from Europe. So in the end, it comes back to what it is you want to buy. You can only completely disassociate yourself from the Western monetary system if you're not actually interested in buying so much from them anymore. And we're not anywhere near there, despite China's big rise over the last couple of decades in terms of its role in global trade. You know, China is becoming an addition to these other big economic blocks. It's not a substitute for them. Can I maybe ask when we... The the steps were taken against the Russian central bank uh, a little bit more than a year ago. I mean, Russia last year had more than two hundred billion dollars in in oil revenue, so there's still flows going into the Russian central bank. So, what is the Russian central bank doing right now with with those reserves? Are those just going out into the Russian economy to to make sure that it can uh, can stay afloat, or are they still finding ways to to get their money outside of the country? So, first of all, it's not actually going into the Russian central bank because then they wouldn't be able to get it out again. So it's, it's accumulated. And the question is where? How? And I mean, the simple answer is we don't know very much, but we can make some educated guesses. I mean, the important thing here is that this is always very confusing when you think about international reserves. You can't really spend them at home. That's not what they're for. Reserves are basically future imports. All this oil and gas that you sell it's not that you can spend that money at home. You can spend it on buying things from other countries in return. So if we forget about the monetary flows for a second, basically Russia is sending hydrocarbons out of the country and getting other things in return, other things it wants. Luxury goods, high-tech military stuff if it can get it, semiconductors, you know, you name it, anything. That's what the trade is. The monetary flows come because we don't do barter trade, although Russia has been forced to do a little bit more of that. And because we don't want to spend it all at the same time as we as we make the money. So, so that's the monetary side of this. But ultimately, it's about swapping hydrocarbons for other goods. So this money, in, in one sense, will never really come into Russia. It will pay for other things. Now, what's happened to the two, three hundred billion that they've made? So it obviously pays for some imports that they still have. The imports have fallen, but they're still buying stuff from other countries. They're buying Iranian drones. They're still managing to source quite a lot of machine tools from from Europe, sometimes in violation of sanctions. Uh, we know that there are quite a lot of loopholes in this sanctions and circumvention. Uh, they're buying a lot from China. They have been paying for imports, but there's about a 200 billion surplus, so export earnings minus import payments. So where's that gone? About half of it, it looks like, has gone to paying down outstanding debt. So basically reducing liabilities uh, Russian entities had to the rest of the world. So maybe, maybe those were maturing bonds, maybe there were loans coming due, and you just pay them in, instead of renewing them and keeping the cash. But there's still, I think, at least 100 billion left. Now, that will never have made its way into the central bank, because then, then it would be frozen. What we know is that, of course, it was paid to the exporters. That could be Gazprom for gas in Europe, it could be Rosneft, it could be other companies. That would have gone into accounts in, uh, in the EU, if it's a euro payment, or in uh, in the US, if it's a dollar payment. The question is, what happens after that? We don't know. This isn't public. You can try to look a little bit about big capital flows from those countries where it was first paid. So Gazprom 
has an account in its own bank in Luxembourg where the euro payments go in and sort of seen some funny movements in the balance sheet of the whole Luxembourgish banking system. But we don't really know. Normally, supervisors won't monitor individual accounts and individual transfers from one account to another account. I can tell you what I would do if I was in the Kremlin or in the finance ministry. I would say, okay, let's find companies, state-owned or state-controlled companies, Russian ones, in jurisdictions outside of these sanctioning countries. And let's try and transfer the money in hard currency to those companies' accounts, still in hard currency, but in a jurisdiction where it can't be taken. So, for example, Turkey. So one case that has been reported was that Gazprom Bank uh, issued a big dollar loan to Rosatom Turkey, which is building a big uh, nuclear plant that had the uh, people wrote about the the good effect for the Turkish uh, reserve balances in the run-up to the Turkish elections that supported the lira a bit. But the other bit of that is that maybe 10, 20 billion dollars worth was now shifted from one Russian state-controlled company to another Russian state-controlled company, where that second state-controlled company has a dollar account in a country that doesn't impose sanctions, namely Turkey. That is something I suspect has been going on quite a bit, but it's quite hard to do in those amounts we're talking about. Maybe some was something like that happened in China. You could imagine the Chinese central bank holding some reserves effectively on behalf of Russia. I have no evidence that that's happened, but it's theoretically possible. The question that I have been asking and haven't got an answer to is, what do Western intelligence services and financial supervisors and regulators, what have they done in terms of trying to find out? Have they tracked these movements or not? Uh, I've come up with a blank when I've tried to answer that question, but I think that's, that's the key question. Have we kept an eye on where the money went after it went into Rosneft's or Gazprom's euro-based or dollar-based account? If not, why not? If we have, what do we know about where it went next? My suspicion is that quite a lot of this is actually hard to get out of either the euro system or the dollar system. And that means that it should be possible to sanction it. On the same issue of how the financial sanctions fail, uh, you may have seen a month, about a month ago, a Twitter post by uh, Robin Brooks, uh, who is the chief economist at the IF, IIF. Uh, essentially, his point is that we are too infatuated with financial sanctions, while in uh, countries of Russia's type, he says they are not necessarily very efficient, very effective. He says uh, they can be really good and really effective in sanctions when, uh, in countries with current account deficit, for example, Turkey in 2018. But in the case of Russia, which kept accumulating these huge revenues from oil and gas, he says essentially it's, uh, they're, they're pretty meaningless. And that's, if anything, 2022 has demonstrated that, right, where, where despite all the sanctions from hell, unfortunately, Russia did not really face as much hell as we hoped. I wonder if you have a take on that. It's a good argument. Uh, I don't fully agree. Uh, I mean, it's true that if you're a surplus country, then you can you can import things. But of course, it depends on how, your sur- how big your surplus is. And, uh, you know, if we had stopped those oil sales earlier or forced the earnings to be kept in some controlled account, like an escrow account. This was a proposal that came up early on that was never pursued, a bit like the Iraq model. Then they couldn't have spent it, right? Plus, we also saw that imports did fall to some extent. But, I mean, the surpluses are so big uh, that maybe there was never a, a big threat to their ability to buy imports. That's why we also have sanctions on what they're allowed to import or what we export to them. Those sanctions are also full of loopholes. They're not comprehensive enough. They can be circumvented. Not every country implements them. We know all the problems. 
But it's not right to say that they haven't had any effect. If they hadn't, then you wouldn't have had to go through all these circumventions procedures that we are kind of, all of us are trying to, to track. So, so that's one answer. Um, but the second answer is a bit different. It's even if you're a surplus country, so you can still get your imports. And I said earlier that you don't spend this money at home in any kind of direct economic sense. It still matters because it matters in a kind of funny accounting sense. So the Russian government's oil revenues enter the budget, right, in, in ruble terms. If those revenues aren't there, then you need to raise that revenue in some other way. I think what's happening at the moment is because that surplus is accumulated, somebody, some entity in Russia has a, an improved balance sheet, right? They have greater assets compared to liabilities than they used to. So it's a bit like a saving. And it's, it's a bit like in, in any other country, it's kind of easier to bond finance a government uh, outlay than to tax finance it. Because if you bond finance it, you're still kind of shifting consumption from one thing to a government outlay. People consume less, but they do it because they think they're saving rather than because they think they're losing their money in taxes. So if you didn't have this inflow, and we're going to see this this year, I think, if the finance ministry budget in Moscow has to deal with a much smaller inflow of, uh, of oil and gas revenue, they will have to make the money, they have to make the sums add up in some sense. They will probably do that through through loans, whether those are in the private market through bond issuance or some sort of forced, the easiest way is some forced monetization, basically through the banking system. You force banks to buy government bonds, for example. There are lots of ways you can do this, but it's effectively, ultimately some kind of monetization. So you should start to see an inflationary effect, either that or outright taxes. Neither of those are politically very attractive, right? So, so if we did manage to stop the inflow, even though it's not an actual flow into the country. But if we manage to stop the surplus, the effect, I think, at home would be either inflationary or uh, a requirement for higher taxes, both of which come at a political price. So that would be, it would still be worthwhile. Well, Martin, I want to thank you so much for being here. Maybe just sort of one concluding thought for me. I mean, I think one issue or challenge that it strikes me with this subject is that it we're oftentimes posing this as if this is money for some future reconstruction for Ukraine. But, you know, Ukraine has quite significant financial needs right now. And then when we think about trying to solve one of the major military dilemmas right now, which is to convince Putin that we're in this for the long haul, well, part of that is just financial, is just having the money available to buy the weapons that Ukraine needs. And if Ukraine had $50 billion right now, they could then start making long-term procurements that would then ensure, you know, send a message to Russia that this is not going to get easier for them, that the West isn't just going to turn away. It is sort of a longer-term Ukraine reconstruction problem, but also something that is kind of directly relevant uh, to kind of I impacting the calculations, I think, that are taking place in, in the Kremlin. And I think you've done a masterclass on explaining this issue, uh, which is really useful, not just for, I think, us and for our audience, but also for policymakers that, that may not be as schooled in the economic side, and now will go start asking their treasury colleagues and, and, and international uh, legal experts to start, we'll start poking them a little bit more. Can't we do more? Can't we do more here? And I think that can, that can lead to a lot of progress uh, in, in sort of uh, leading to better, out, better, better bureaucratic outcomes as, we tr as everyone's trying to navigate what are really complex issues. So thank you so much for being here. This has been a, been a real pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I learned a lot from, from you, all you colleagues and, and other people in this whole ecosystem. It takes a village, right? We're all trying to dig a little bit here and there. And if together we can bring information out that, that as you say, get our political leaders to sit up and say, hey, how much is there really? Where is it? What can we do about it? Um, then we'll have done a good thing. So keep up the good work. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.